0: I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. My guest today is one of the world's leading thinkers and practitioners on women's leadership, and she's just joined us as the inaugural director of the Global Institute of Women's Leadership at the Australian National University. Michelle Ryan is a professor of social and organisational psychology who famously uncovered the phenomenon of the glass cliff whereby women and members of minority groups are more likely to be placed in leadership positions that are risky or precarious. Research into the glass cliff was named by the New York Times as one of the top 100 ideas that shaped 2008. And in 2016, the term, the glass cliff, was shortlisted as word of the year, maybe that should be phrase of the year, by the Oxford English Dictionary, Welcome to the podcast Michelle. Thanks very much Julia. Now we're both based in the UK at the moment quite a long way from Australia which has been home for both of us and will become home again when we can get back there. I'm in London and you're in Exeter having been hunkered down for the pandemic. What's the last 12 months been like for you?
1: Yeah, it's been an interesting time to be so far away from home. I mean, I've been living in the UK for 17, almost 18 years now, but I still call Australia home, as they say. But it's been an interesting place to be over the pandemic. I'm really lucky we live in quite a rural location, so we've actually got eight acres to sort of spread out in, to walk the dogs, to sort of be there. But, I mean, the UK has been an interesting place to see all of this unfold and even more interesting to see the differences between Australia and the UK in, in, in how they've been dealing with the problem, but also, you know, how
0: people have been, been approaching the issue as well. For those who aren't familiar with UK geography, can you describe where you are? And you do have the most remarkable house, and I know that this isn't better homes and gardens. I'll leave that to my good friend, Joanna Griggs, but you should tell us about your remarkable house.
1: Yeah, so we live down in Devon, so very sort of rural and idyllic. I'm at the University of Exeter, which is a world-leading university, but I'm lucky enough to be able to live 10 minutes away and live in the middle of a field. So I live in a 1880s railway station. And in the 1960s, a whole lot of railway stations were closed down. So a lot of these rural small stations, and we live in one of them. So as an Australian to live in something with such history and such heritage and and just be able to wake up and open the back door
0: and be on platform is quite amazing you are of course going to come home to australia to lead the global institute for women's leadership at anu but before we discuss that i want to take you right back to the very beginning now you've said about yourself that you were the girl that was good at science at school now, can you talk to us about that? Why science? What was it like being the girl who was good at science? And in all of that, when was the first moment that you said to yourself, I reckon girls get treated a bit differently to boys?
1: Yeah, I, I think science is an interesting one. It was just something that came naturally to me. I think I liked the systematic nature of maths and I liked the scientific method and and for me those sorts of things just made sense i guess and i enjoyed them i liked figuring out problems i liked solving issues and for me as a girl that was good at science when i was trying to work out what i wanted to do when i left school when i went to university everyone said well you should just study science that that's what you should do and so i did i studied maths i studied physics and even though it was super interesting i you know i really found it incredibly fascinating solving problems wasn't enough. It didn't get my my blood sort of really going. and, And I actually dropped out of university. I ended up working a number of jobs. I was a barista. I made donuts. I made sandwiches. And then I took some time off and I traveled around Europe, came back to Australia and thought, actually, I'm going to try something a bit different. Instead of being good at science, I'm going to try something that's a bit out of my comfort zone. So I studied psychology, I studied sociology, I studied philosophy and I studied women's studies. And and for me, that was really when my, I guess, political awareness really started to take off and I could suddenly solve a problem that was relevant to me. So not just an abstract problem like a mathematics problem, but a problem that really implicated me about how women were treated, how they were viewed, the objectification of women, the inequality. And I think learning about those social problems that needed to be fixed, that's what really sort of lit that fire for me. Bringing all of that together, I guess, using, I guess, psychology to look at these sorts of things you get the best of both worlds. So you get this scientific method. So you could, it's rigorous and you know, there's an experimental
0: aspect to it. But then you're really trying to solve what I see as important social problems. And which parts of Australia were you in when all was, this was happening? You grew up in which part? Very much East Coast. I was born in Sydney and really grew up in Canberra.
1: So I, you know, was a small child in Canberra. I went to university in Canberra because ANU was the closest university to, to where I lived really. And I ended up staying there and doing my PhD there as well. So I'm very much a Canberra girl. Moved to Melbourne after my PhD and on my way to the UK. But a lot of time in Canberra. So it's going to be very interesting to come back after so many, almost 20 years, to see what Canberra is
0: like now. My understanding is it's changed enormously. And who were the political figures that you remember from your childhood, given Parliament House would have been sort of up the road? (laughs) No matter what part of Canberra you grew up in, Parliament House is a big dominant feature.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, I guess as coming through as a teenager and those sorts of things, it was very much sort of Bob Hawke and, uh, you know, the sort of statements he might make when we were, you know, won the America's Cup. And, And I think he was a big figure. I mean, he was someone who was incredibly charismatic charismatic, very likable, you know, really felt like he was someone that we could relate to. We would always watch, you know, the news at home and, and, and sort of seeing him on, on television was great. I guess as I got a little bit older, I think seeing Natasha Stott Despoier, um on television, seeing someone in, you know, in big black boots go in into into Parliament was something that was really inspiring to me. So she's she's about my age, a, a couple of years older. And, and for me, I think that was incredibly inspiring to see someone like me in Parliament
0: House. For those who aren't aficionados in Australian politics, Natasha Stott Spoyer was uh, one of the first women to lead a political party. She led a smaller party called the Australian Democrats, but she was uh, very young when she did it and very much remembered as a role model as a result and still working on causes for women and girls, particularly uh, against violence against women. Now, just coming back to this selection, you know, the girl who's good at science, you go to study science, uh, you end up in psychology and and gender studies. I mean, you, you know, done a lot of research, you would be aware of a lot of research that although men and women start out with similar career ambitions, uh, women are less likely to want to progress in male-dominated spaces where they're exposed to the idea that the people that succeed in the field don't look like them. Do you think that played any part in your decision to move away from, you know, physics and that kind of thing towards psychology, or was it the influences you have described to us? That is
1: really interesting, actually. There's a funny anecdote, actually. When I came straight out of school, I did have this small inkling that I wanted to study psychology. I'd never studied it in high school, but I did think, oh, human behavior, that's sort of interesting. And when I first enrolled at university, I, I thought, well, maybe I'll study physics and psychology. At the time at the Australian National University, both physics and psychology shared a building, so they were within the same building. And they actually had a complete overlap in their first year courses. So they were on at the same time. And when I asked, you know, how is it that I can do both? They actually said, no one's ever done both before. Like the people that do psychology are not the people that do physics. Unfortunately, at that time, I dropped psychology because I thought I've never studied it before. I may as well continue with physics. But really i should have taken that as a as a bit of a, a message about who studies psychology and who studies physics reflecting on it actually i don't think i had a single lecturer in physics or in maths who were, was a woman so so there certainly weren't the role models there and i do wonder whether maybe those disciplines might have been more inspiring if if they were taught by as you say people like me Certainly in psychology, lots more women that are there. And in fact, if you look at undergraduate psychology courses, they're probably 80% women. So there's a lot of women coming through. It's still male dominated in a lot of areas, though. If you look at who makes professor, you know, who's giving the big keynote addresses, who is sort of leading up the conferences, there, there are still a lot of men there. They're definitely disproportionately there in those leadership positions.
0: When in this uh, pathway through university with subject changes and all the rest of it, when would you have said about yourself, I'm a feminist?
1: Yeah, I think really when I first started studying women's studies, it was something that really it had been in the background. I was, was aware of these sorts of things, but I don't think I had the vocabulary to really... Think about it and discuss it. I, I I remember, I remember in high school having a discussion with my then boyfriend's mother about our high school had a, a women's room, so there was a, a room for women where women could go to have space. And um, I remember her saying, "Well, why why do they need a woman's room? Why isn't there a men's room?" And I remember just not being able to make these arguments. I felt like for sure we definitely needed it. This was something that, you know, we, we can't just pretend that men and women need the same sorts of things. But I didn't really have the vocabulary to, to make the arguments that I wanted. And, and I think once I started studying women's studies, also philosophy though, sociology, uh, psychology, it really gave me the sort of ammunition that I needed and the way to think about these things. So not just the figures, you know, the you know, this is how big the gender pay gap is or this is what underrepresentation is, but the why and, and understanding those sorts of processes to me were really fascinating.
0: And then coming out with your degree, we're talking about the early 2000s and it was a time when the proportion of working women had been steadily increasing since the Second World War. But it's actually in the early 2000s that this trend began to reverse and the proportion of women at work stopped rising for the first time in decades and actually started decreasing around the time of the financial crash in 2007. This is taking a very global view. Obviously, individual country statistics don't necessarily exactly conform to that. Why do you think we've seen that economic shift for women? I mean, would you have thought when you came out of your degree, perhaps that progress is too slow, but it is inexorably forward? You know, coming through doing a women's studies degree, you've got a lot of feeling
1: that we're going to make a difference. There's going to be change here. You've got a whole cohort of mainly women, but people in general that are all about change. And and I think that's really empowering in, in lots of ways. What I find really interesting is, in reality, that change doesn't happen nearly as fast as we think or hope that it will. And and what I've really learned as I've climbed the, the sort of hierarchy, but also as I've done the research looking at other women climb the hierarchy is that, yeah, it is not linear in any way. And it's not consistent. So so actually we get big points of stagnation. And I think we're actually in a place of massive stagnation at the moment in terms of making gains in terms of gender equality. And in fact we often see slipbacks. So things actually go backwards. So sometimes there's a bit of a pendulum that happens where when there are gains that are too far in some people's views, then there's backlash against that and there's pushback against that as well. I think we're definitely seeing that in the US at the moment in terms of abortion laws. I mean, at the moment in Texas, we're, we're seeing rights being pulled back in terms of access to reproductive health. So, yeah, I, I don't think that things are, are linear. What I also think is really interesting is is when I talk to undergraduate students here they have the same view that I had in the late 90s is that everything's going to be better we're going to make the change and actually I think this generation that are coming through are amazing and if anything anyone's going to change things it's going to be them but I also then say but that's what we thought as well you know as a generation x we thought we would make the change and the millennials they thought they would make the change and you know these zennials or you know generation Z they think they're going to make the change and I wonder where we are going to get that change when is is it really going to sort of get to that tipping point where we get much
0: closer to equality than we are now? I'm going to sidebar off that comment uh, rather than keep uh, going through your life history, though we will come back to that. In that analysis of are we stagnating, when's the change going to be, what do you think this COVID era will come to mean when we're looking at it decade from now or 20 years from now? what will researchers then look back on this time and say about its impact on gender equality?
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think when you get massive social upheaval, it is a potential for change. So so once you start to do things differently, you know, because you've been forced to, that that can mean change. Whether that's good or bad change, I'm not sure. So we've certainly seen some regression um, in terms of gender equality In countries where there have been stronger lockdowns, where there's been homeschooling, where there's been layoffs and things like that, we know that women have been affected much more. So women have been more likely to lose their jobs because they've been precarious or not covered through government sort of initiatives to to keep jobs or to keep paying people. We know that women have been taking on much more of the childcare and the domestic sphere, especially with homeschooling. And so in, in that way, we can see a shift back. In other ways, I think there's potentially a shift forwards and maybe we're just starting to move into that. We're starting to think of the workplace as different. Many people haven't been into the office in 18 months. What the ideal worker looks like now I think is changing it's not necessarily someone who's sitting at their desk from nine to five we know that we can work flexibly we know we can work from home we know that zoom works you know so it might open a whole range of sort of flexibilities which might advantage women or it might allow women to come forward. But it might not. Um, It also potentially threatens work life balance. It might open up some options for flexibility. But I think also, if we expect people to be available all the time now, that's a different type of issue for women. So, for all sorts of workers, but likely to affect women more as well. So, I think it will be interesting to see where this goes. I guess things don't always happen in the same direction in all areas of life. So we might have some gains, or we might have some losses. Some of those might balance themselves out. The other thing to look at, I guess, is how we've been thinking about leaders and leadership in in this time of crisis. So in terms of the pandemic, um, you mentioned the glass cliff really early on, and and I think there's been some very interesting examples of how women have led in times of crisis. So I think Jacinda Ardern is a a very good example of this of someone where there's been a not a lot of analysis of her handling of the crisis perhaps an idea that that she's done particularly well because she is a woman there's been other examples as well um, looking at all sorts of different levels of leadership and the research coming out is suggesting that it is the case that that female leaders do have tended to fare better into this time of crisis.
0: So let's come now to the research work you've done in the years uh, since your university experiences and that does bring us very directly to the glass cliff. Now for someone who's never heard of the glass cliff, they may well have heard of the glass ceiling, you know, that high hard barrier you smash your head on when you're trying to move from high up to the ultimate top job. Hillary Clinton, for example, talked frequently of the glass ceiling as uh, she strove to become President of the United States. But what's the glass cliff?
1: Yeah, so our research on the glass cliff really looks at what happens to those women who do start to break through the glass ceiling, that do take on leadership positions. And one of the questions that we we really had was what sort of positions do they tend to take on? Our research, which has been conducted in politics but also in the business sphere, there's been work in the sporting arena, in education, all sorts of different areas, suggests that women are much more likely to take on leadership positions in these times of crisis when things are difficult. So within an organisation it might be when share prices have dropped low. In politics it might be after a scandal in the sporting arena it might be you know after a big streak of losses so this idea then is that while women have broken through the glass ceiling they're on this glass cliff so the idea is that they're high up they've got a senior leadership position but because they're leading in times of crisis that position is relatively risky and relatively precarious so they're perched up high with you know the chance of falling off and we see this as i guess another form of of relatively subtle discrimination. It's harder to lead in times of crisis. It's difficult to be seen as a renowned leader when everything is falling down
0: around you, even if those things were set in train long before you took your role. And in terms of what creates the glass cliff, is it because organisations, political parties, sporting clubs in crisis say to themselves, man, we've got to do something different than we've ever done before. I know we'll get a very different type of leader, we'll get a woman. Or is it that those jobs get advertised and people with choices, you know, tending to be men who perhaps can pick or choose from a variety of jobs, say there's no way that I'm going to go for that one because it's a poison chalice, Whereas a woman will step forward because it could be her only opportunity to lead. Which of those do you think it is?
1: I mean, I think with psychology, there's never one easy answer. So actually, I think it's both of those things as well as other things. So I think there's definitely a case of men saying, actually, I won't take that. I'll step back. And and for women, they might not feel that they'll have another option that comes on. So they might feel that they might need to take it. I think it is also the case that it could be about trying something different. There's some nice research in Japan that looks at what happens in times of crisis, and they don't have very many female leaders in Japan. But when an organisation is in crisis, they tend to appoint someone from outside Japan, so often a Westerner. Um, So it is this idea that we'll try something different. I think if I was to be also a little bit less charitable, I think there is a little bit of setting women up to fail. So not just that men step back and say no I don't want it, but actually they say why don't you take this one, you know. So so there's not just a, you know, an absence of men, but but definitely pushing women forward and and then you get to say things like well you want it to lead, here's your opportunity, go on. So I think it could also be the case, and we've done a little bit of research on this, is that there are some ideas that maybe women are particularly good at crisis management. So are they actually going to come and turn things around and do something different? Or is it actually just that we want people to think that we're doing something a little bit different? And there's some subtle nuances around that about whether it looks good to change things or whether you think it will actually resolve in, you know, long-term change. I think often in terms of crises, sometimes you can't fix them. Sometimes you just have to ride them out. And the question is, who rides it out? You know, who does the damage control? Who gets the reputation of being difficult? I think the the perfect example for that, I think, is Theresa May during Brexit. Someone had to ride that, you know, immediate Brexit roller coaster, and, and it wasn't going to be any of them.
0: And, of course, the problem here that the glass cliff leads to, apart from all of the ones you've just spoken about for the women involved, is that from the outside, it gives way to a lot of lazy analysis. So people easily say to themselves, oh, women leave these companies and these companies are in trouble That means that the women are bad leaders rather than unpacking the real cause and effect, which is that the companies were in trouble and then went and got a female leader. How often do you see that in the discourse, in the media or whatever it must having done all of the research on the glass cliff that you have cause you to want to tear your hair out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And indeed, that's exactly where the research started. So to take it back to its, its first point, there was an article in the Times, a London newspaper, that essentially said, look, women are coming in and taking more and more roles, but they're messing it all up. You know, they're wreaking havoc, they're causing share prices to go down this is on the front page of the business section of the Times, and they said maybe businesses would be better off without women on their boards of directors. So this was a really strong claim. And it was actually from reading that article and actually yelling at that article <laughs> that, <laughs> that we actually reanalyzed the data that they were talking about and showed exactly what you were saying. So it wasn't that women were causing share price to go down. It was absolutely that share price was going down and they appointed a woman. But I think, as you say, what this does is potentially reinforce the stereotype that women aren't good at leadership. Oh, look at her. She didn't do a good job. Oh, look at the share price of that company. So so it really perpetuates these stereotypes that we have. And part of me wonders whether part of the stagnation that we've seen over the last 10, 15 years is partly because of this. We have women come into leadership positions they do well, but there are these this reinforcement of the stereotype that things tend to go wrong when there are women in charge, and, and so people don't appoint another woman and a third woman and a fourth woman, so we don't get this real critical mass that
0: we need for real change. When we're looking at things in the public discourse that can be a bit frustrating, I think another one of them, and you've been very critical of it, is the lean-in style phenomenon. The analysis that if women lent in more and so were more assertive, more prepared to put themselves forward for that next big job, more prepared to negotiate a higher pay packet, then we would see gender gaps close. We would see more women come to leadership positions. We'd see a lesser gender pay gap. Can you take me through what you think is wrong with that analysis? Yeah, I mean, this is a very popular approach at, at the moment and
1: I can see its popularity. There's something really empowering about all of those lean-in messages. And, you know, it's just like, you can do it. You know, if there's a rocket ship, get on. You know, so there, there's a lot of empowerment there. My concern is, is that what we're trying to do is fix women. So we, we recognise that gender equality is a problem and then we tell women all the things that they need to do to fix it. They need to be more assertive. They need to go on leadership courses. They need to go for negotiation courses as if they're unable to do those things. And, and if only they learnt and if only they were a bit more confident and assertive that everything would be all right. So I think this has a couple of problems with it. One, I think it's blaming women for the inequality that's there. And in doing so, it really suggests, well, why aren't women leaning in? Why aren't they being assertive? Why are they unsuccessful at negotiating? And actually all of the research says it's because they face discrimination. So there's a great study um, that's come out of Australia, actually, that looked at negotiation around pay. And it found that women negotiate just as much as men and just as hard as men. They're just not paid as much. So it isn't actually their failure to negotiate. It's the discrimination that they're paid less. It's the same with things like assertiveness. You can teach women assertiveness and you can tell them to be assertive, but actually all the research shows that women who are assertive face massive amounts of backlash We don't like assertive women. We think they're horrible in terms of how we evaluate them. So we know that if a man and a woman act in exactly the same way, in an assertive way, he's seen as great leadership material and and really strong and she's seen as being pushy. So women know this. They're not assertive because of the backlash that they face and just teaching them to be more assertive is really setting them up For more backlash so what we need to be doing is changing structures changing the way in which people respond to assertive women or the way in which people respond to women's negotiations and then maybe just the final thing there is that what we're trying to get women to do is is essentially act more like men to be more stereotypically masculine so what we're doing there is saying we have a view of what successful leadership looks like and if only you'd adhere to that it would be okay. And again, I think that's problematic. What what we're trying to do then is fix women. And then what we have to do is fix every single woman that comes along. So we fix one generation of women and they move to the top and then we've got to fix the next generation and move on instead of actually changing the structures of their. And, and I think in some ways, the biggest problem about this is that this is a strategy that works for some women and actually for a very small minority of women. And these tend to be privileged white women that that can sort of get away with it. So while it works for some and they can then be lauded as this sort of, oh, look, this works, look at this success, it doesn't work for most women. And that's why it doesn't really lead to systemic change.
0: I think that's absolutely right. And part of the whole lean-in movement too has been about recommending individual strategies to women for managing work and family life rather than looking at the sort of deep-seated structural questions about how societies are treating the availability and affordability of childcare, the true division of domestic labour or the fairer division of domestic labour. What's your observations on all of that, both from the research perspective and anything personal you want to say as someone who's uh, navigated their career whilst also navigating family life?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways these are things that we think is easier to fix. It's easier to fix women than to bring about systemic change. It's easier to talk about work-life balance than it is to actually pay for childcare or proper maternity leave. So these quick fixes, I think it fits very well with a very individualistic sort of neoliberal kind of approach, isn't it, which is, you know, if you work hard, if you do it right if you fit within the system you'll be successful of course changing the system is much more difficult looking at the division of labor within one's household we can make all the things about saying well i like cooking or i you know i'm better at the gardening or the you know the childcare or those sorts of things these are all our individual choices about how we as a couple decide to divide labor but it's very interesting that all couples just tend to divide their labour, you know, in very very similar ways. I think it's much more difficult to then address that and change that. But yes, I, I think there are models of where this is more or less successful. So I think in a number of Scandinavian countries, in terms of the provision of childcare and maternity leave and paternity leave, these do lead to good gains. There's not perfect gains either and and there's also new evidence coming out that there's backlash against those changes as as well which is interesting.
0: Now you are in the throes of packing up what has been a long-term life in the UK to get back home to Australia and particularly back home to Canberra And we all know that in this world, um, travelling from one part of the world to the other is not exactly how it used to be. So there's hotel quarantine and all the rest of it. But I want to ask you not about the logistics of it, I'm sure you could talk about that for a long time, but the motivation for it. What made you decide that you would really like to be the director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at the Australian National University, which we describe as the sister institute to the Global Institute for Women's Leadership here at King's College London?
1: Having been in the UK for a long time, I felt like I this was probably my place. You know, you work out a system and how it works. I feel like I've been really sort of well-treated here in, in some ways. I've been very much supported in my career. But when the Global Institute at ANU came up and I was approached to apply for it, I just thought, oh, if I made up the perfect job for myself, it would look exactly like this one. So it's very exciting for me. Uh, it really is that balance between research, so real evidence-based research research but then applying that research. So saying, how, how can we take this research and really affect change? And, and I think that's what Jewel, the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, is really trying to do. It's that sort of three-pronged attack of research activism and and really implementation of policy change and and that excites me and there's something about coming home to do that which is really interesting as well so to actually come to the same university where I sat in my you know first year women's studies classes and, and really where my feminism was born is is really exciting to me and I think just on a more personal note as well I think, To be able to come home, to be close to my family, to bring my family to Australia, so so they're a British family, is exciting. My son's 12 years old and is very, very excited about coming to Australia although he's pretty annoyed that Canberra is essentially the one city that is not on the beach and that is the one city we're moving to but I think they're all excited. Uh, My partner as well has been incredibly supportive you couldn't have asked for a more proud supportive partner um, which has been great so I think we're looking forward to a new uh, I guess part of our lives you know it feels a bit like coming
0: home for me but also the beginning of a, a big adventure. So all of those listening can expect to hear a lot from you and the Global Institute for Women's Leadership once you get in and are able to really get stuck in and started. It's going to be so exciting. Now I'm going to move to the last few questions of the podcast. I always ask my guests to comment on a fact, and my fact for you is that even though 80% of psychology undergraduates are women, Only 33% of psychology professors are women. Why is that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, if we could solve that problem. Yeah, I mean, I think it it is really interesting. One, psychology is an incredibly popular course. So a lot of people go into it not wanting to be professors or to do research. So it forms a really good basis for a lot of different careers, which I think is great. So it is incredibly popular. I do wish more more men would do it. You know, I, I actually think it's a great building block to understand a whole lot of things in terms of human behavior but also within the scientific method it's great for social science research it's great for hr professionals and all of those sorts of things so one it'd be great if there were more men studying it but yeah then in terms of that academic pipeline you see it every day you just see at every point of where you can go up more and more women leak out of the pipeline and I think it is interesting because there's a lot of research in STEM, you know, in, in science, technology, engineering and maths to get more and more women in because they don't have that base level of women. A lot of people say, well, psychology is fine. You've got so many women in there. There isn't a problem. But I think the fact that they are leaking out is, is not about how big the base level is but what success looks like and what leadership looks like, what good academic work looks like what a professor looks like and and I think that's the same across psychology and STEM and classics and philosophy and all of those sorts of things so so yeah I think it is how we keep women in that pipeline Um, I think a lot of women tend to drop out at that at the end of their PhD postdocs so and they move into industry that's okay as, as well there are really good careers there as well But yeah, there is just something about women stagnating along the way or or dropping out. And I was really lucky. I had a lot of role models, some of them men, some of them women, who just really encouraged me every step of the way. And um, I'd like to hope that I can do that for other sort of women coming through. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with? Oh, it might be a little bit related to your your last question. I don't know whether it's the worst, but it's the one that absolutely stands out for me. I was quite a junior academic and I wanted to go up for promotion, I think from senior lecturer to associate professor. And I went to my head of department and I asked him whether I could go up for promotion. I brought my CV, all the selection criteria and all of those sorts of things And uh, he looked at it and he said, well, you meet all the criteria, but I think you should wait one more year before you go ahead. And I I said, oh, okay. Uh, What what do you think I should do in that year? He said, oh, well, I I don't know. But you know, if you don't get promoted, you'll be sad and you're one of my happiest little workers. So so I think you should just hold off. And I mean, I really thought he was going to pat me on the head. It, It was just so condescending. And So, I mean, it's not big and it's not egregious, but it was just one of those small things for someone that should have been pushing me forward. And he was kind in some ways. He was really worried about my emotions, but so much more worried about my emotions than my actual progression and worried about me being sad rather than being angry that I wasn't being promoted. And for me, I think that's really sort of emblematic of the type of misogyny that's there it's often not big and in your face it's not often these days that we get people just looking at you saying you can't do that but it's the small little indications of saying well maybe you shouldn't do it which which i find quite egregious
0: wow that's quite a tale now if you were all powerful what's the one thing that you would change for women if you could only change one what would it be oh i do think the domestic division of labor i mean i i do think
1: this might just be someone that's been in lockdown for a long time. But, um, <laughs> but, but I do think actually this underpins so many different things about confidence and about availability and about careers and, and all of those sorts of things. And the, the reason I say that is because for me, within my area, looking at workplace gender equality, and, and I've got to admit, the work that I do tends to be very professional, middle class, you know, workplace gender equality. There's so many interventions at the workplace level. We're really trying to do all of these different things of policy and practice and there's unconscious bias training. There's all sorts of things going on. But I think unless we address the other side of the coin, of the work-life balance coin, and unless we actually look at how society structured and gendered, and I think a lot of that starts at the home. That's where all of the stereotypes start about what men can and can't do, what women are good at and not good at. So, so while flippantly it might sound like I just want to do less cooking, I actually mean that, that actually if we change some of those really basic things that we're doing at a basic level, I think that actually has more chance of changing our gender stereotypes than anything that we do in the
0: workplace. Virginia Woolf says let us never cease from thinking. What is this civilization in which we find ourselves? What are these ceremonies and why should we take part in them? What are these professions and why should we make money out of them? Michelle Ryan says. Oh, I
1: think that never cease thinking is is a good place to start. And, And I think it's not just thinking, I think it's questioning. So for me, With my research, I I just think always keep questioning, not accepting the way things are, the explanations that people are given. Oh, there's gender inequality because women choose to stay at home. I think questioning
0: these things from the outset, I think that's where we get change. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Michelle, for the conversation and for coming on as the Director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at ANU. It's going to be a fantastic uh, year next year when you're there leading away. And I'm sure that many listeners to the podcast will be following the work. Thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thanks very much, Julia.
1: podcast of one's own is a production of the global institute for women's leadership at king's college london the institute works towards a world in which women of all backgrounds have fair and equal access to leadership if you liked what you've been listening to please tell your friends we'd love it if you could also rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider to ensure more people can find out about us if you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at kcl.ac.uk. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and edited by Nick Hilton. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, visit our website at giwl.kcl.ac.uk and sign up to our updates. Thanks for listening and join us next
0: time.